Well, it's a joy to be able to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Uh, many of you know that over the last uh, several months, actually, the last few months at least, I have been in the process of getting licensed in the PCA to be able to preach regularly. And so I am uh, very glad that that uh, license was granted a few weeks ago. And so I'm very excited to be able to bring uh, the Word of God to you today. And we are going to be beginning a series in the book of Esther. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1, I'm going to be reading the whole chapter, and so I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Esther chapter 1, hear now the word of God. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, that is the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles of the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days. And when these days were completed, The king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violent hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, He commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abigtha, Zethar, and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, And his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men, who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, 
who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princess, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household, and speak according to the language of his people. Well, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you particularly this morning for the book of Esther. Lord, we pray that you would guide our study here and that you would help us to behold wondrous things from your word. We pray that it would accomplish what you want it to do. And we pray now that you would join us and that you would change our hearts and conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, just out of, uh, just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever read uh, George Orwell's book, Animal Farm? Anybody read that? Okay, there, there's a few people who've read that. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a classic book. It's one of those books that a lot of people have read, and, uh, and for good reason. You know, it's, it's, it's a classic, and it's, it is so uh, entertaining to read. And so for those of you who haven't read the book, or for those of you who have read it but have perhaps forgotten what it was about, uh, Orwell wrote this book, Animal Farm. And the story of the book is such that the animals in a farm decided one day that they wanted to overthrow the farmer and his family. And so that's what they did. They overthrew the farm, and the animals set up their own government. And what the animals did was they set up a socialist government. And what's funny is that Orwell in this book decided that he wanted to uh, critique the socialist government arise. It was the rising in his day. And so he wrote this funny, this allegorical book to try to poke fun at this particular form of government that was gaining a lot of traction uh, in his day. And uh, what, what the reason why Orwell did that, okay, the reason why he wanted to write this book and, and try to do this is because Orwell knew that if you can sort of you know, poke some fun at someone in authority, you can kind of, you know, get them a little upset, and you can also sub- sometimes subtract some power from those people. You know, if, if we can learn to laugh at those in authority over us, you know, we can, in some sense, dethrone them. We can sort of take away their power and show that they're really not all they're cracked up to be. They're really not as great as they think they are, nor are they as great as we sometimes tend to think they are. And I think there's a certain sense in which the book of Esther is functioning kind of like Animal Farm. Esther is written, okay? Esther is written to teach a number of important lessons. And one of those lessons is the absolute providence and sovereignty of God. 
I don't know how familiar that you all are with the book of Esther, or if you've read it before, or how many times you've read it, but as we make our way through this book, I think you're going to see this many times, we're going to see this together, that the message of the book of Esther is that God is in charge and he's taking care of his people. He is the sovereign one. And in chapter 1 here, our text for today, the author of Esther wants to poke a little bit of fun at the king of Persia who was ruling uh, in the day that this was written, or who at least had recently ruled when this book was written. He wants to poke a little bit of fun at the governing authority in this day. Now, not in a mocking way, not in a, in a disrespectful way, because Scripture teaches we're supposed to honor the governing authorities, but the author of Esther wants to poke a little bit of theological fun at the king of Persia and show that he's not all he's cracked up to be. He's not as powerful or as great as he thinks that he is. And so the, the chapter 1 here, sort of the main point, if you will, that this passage wants to teach us is that we really can't depend on earthly kings. It's for this reason we can't depend on earthly kings. They're not all that they're cracked up to be. And Esther 1 unfolds this lesson for us in two ways. All right? First of all, we have the exaltation of the king. And then secondly is the humiliation of the king. The exaltation and the humiliation. And so let's look at how Esther unfolds this lesson for us. We can't depend on earthly kings. And and here's how Esther's going to do that. Firstly, in verse 1, the book identifies the king. We have this guy named Ahasuerus. Now, some of you in your translations, if you're using the NIV or some other translation, you might see the name Xerxes showing up instead of Ahasuerus. And that's just because uh, Xerxes is the, his Greek name, but Ahasuerus is the Aramaic name. Okay, so we're talking about the same person here. This is King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, one of the greatest kings of the kingdom of Persia. And Persia was that great world empire that came and conquered Babylon. And you remember how powerful Babylon was, if you're familiar with the biblical narrative. Babylon was the, the kingdom that came and conquered Egypt and conquered Israel and brought Israel into exile. Babylon is the kingdom that's dominating when Daniel is ministering in his, in his ministry and in his book. So Persia is a powerful empire. Persia is the dominant world empire at the time that Esther's taking place here. Conquered Babylon, ruling all of the known world from India to Ethiopia. India, the far eastern of the known world at the time, and then you've got Ethiopia, which is the far western of the known world at the time. So he's governing this entire body of land. All of this civilized world is under this king's control. So we know that straight from the get-go. This is a powerful man, the most powerful man in the world at this time. And here's what this most powerful man in the world wanted to do. Verse 3, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So you see, King Xerxes, he knew how to throw a party. This is not something that just lasted a day. This is not something that lasted a week or even two months. This was a 180-day-long party celebration. And he threw this massive party, we're told in the text, because he wanted to show off. He wanted to show off his riches. 
He wanted to show off the greatness of his kingdom, all the power that he had, his ability to provide food for all the people in the kingdom for 180 days. Massive feast, massive drinking, massive everything. This is the greatest show of wealth you could imagine at this time. This is how powerful this guy is. Now, historians will tell you actually that uh, just after the events of Esther, uh, King Ahasuerus decided that he was going to go and invade the Greeks. And so historians point out that what, what the king is probably doing here is he's sort of rallying the troops. He's sort of getting his army together. He's getting his rulers together. And he's saying, look, we're going to go conquer the Greeks. So let's party because we're going to win. That's how powerful we are. They're having a celebration essentially before they actually went and fought. So this is the power of this guy. And then in verse 6, we have the amenities of this party. Uh, what did this party include? Now, as I read this, we are supposed to be awed and amazed at the wealth of this king. We're told in verse 6, there were white cotton curtains and violent hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver and a mosaic pavement of porphyry Marble, mother of pearl, precious stones, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavish. You can see the author is going on and on to explain, look at this. This guy is rich, and he's showing off. I think we, uh, at least for me, I understand the value of gold and silver. And so when it talks about gold and silver, that's still pretty valuable today. But I don't think we, we quite grasp in our modern day exactly the greatness of the wealth of this guy. And just to give you an example of that, you notice that it talks about the fact that he had purple cords and, and fine linen and so on. But this, this color purple in the ancient world was not like it was today. Today, if I see someone wearing a purple shirt, you know, okay, cool, it, it matches with whatever they're wearing, that's why they're wearing it, it's in style, whatever. In the ancient world, purple was not just another color. Purple was extraordinarily expensive. If you wanted to get purple dye in the ancient world, here's what you had to do. You had to go to Tyre and Sidon, the only place in the world you could get this, because in Tyre and Sidon, a couple of cities on the shores of of Israel, near the Mediterranean Sea, Tyre and Sidon were the only cities that had a certain kind of mollusk that was living there on the shores. And if you wanted one gram of purple dye, you had to go to Tyre and Sidon, and you had to collect 8,000 mollusks. And harvest the dye from them to order to make it. Okay? 8,000 mollusks for a gram of dye. And we're told here that the king lavished purple dye all over the place in the garden of his palace. Purple dye meant nothing to him. But it was astronomically expensive. This guy's putting on a show. This is the greatest exaltation of human power and riches that you could ever imagine. This is the man. This is the guy. He's got the power. And he is putting on a show for everybody to see. And so in these verses then we have the king's exaltation. But here's the thing. You remember I said earlier, the historians will say that the king was throwing this party to rally his troops to go and conquer the Greeks. Here's what's crazy. After the events of Esther, the king does do this. He raises up his army. They head off to conquer the Greeks, and they fail. They fail miserably. 
In fact, it's a very famous set of battles that happen as the Persians lose to the Greeks. And indeed, the Greeks will actually come later in history, uh, shortly after this period, actually not long after, and Alexander the Great, as the head, will come with his Greek armies and will conquer Persia and all of its empire. So this text here is poking a little bit of fun at the king. He thinks he's great. He thinks he's so rich. But here's the thing. He's going to lose. His kingdom's going to be conquered. In fact, the king here, Ahasuerus, ends up getting assassinated in his sleep. That's how his life ends. He thinks he's all that. He's exalting himself beyond measure. And it doesn't work. He ultimately fails and dies the death of assassination and failure. But we don't actually need uh, extra-biblical history to teach us this point that Ahasuerus gets humbled after exalting himself because he actually gets humbled right here in the text. These preceding verses here show how he gets humbled in the craziest way possible in the ancient world. Verse 10, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine... So he's been drinking, right? He's been drinking for 180 days. He's now at the end of a special seven-day feast for the capital uh, city of Susa. He is merry with wine. He's drunk. His friends are drunk. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. Verse 10, excuse me, verse 11. He gets his units together and he commands them to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. He's been showing off everything he's got. His kingdom, his power, his wealth, his gold. Might as well show off the wife too, you know. Most beautiful woman in the land, probably at least one of the most beautiful. Kings tended to have good looking wives. And he said, hey, I'm showing off everything else I got. Might as well bring my wife out here and parade her around in front of my drunken friends. Let this party go out with a bang. And Vashti responds here in verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Now, he's probably not used to having too many people say no to him. He's got all the power in the world you could imagine as a human being. And his wife says, no, I'm not going to come. Now, I, I was told uh, growing up in Sunday school, and maybe you've heard this before too, that when it says that the queen was commanded to come out wearing only uh, her royal crown, that that meant that she was supposed to come out literally wearing only her crown, as in she was naked. And uh, I, I suppose it's possible. The text doesn't actually say that. But even if that's the case, uh, that's not the embarrassing part. That's not the reason why she said no. That's not why she refused. The reason why Vashti refused is because the king was treating her like a golden goblet. The reason Vashti refused was because he wanted to show her off just like another piece of junk that he had in his palace. Show her off and parade her like a doll before, her drunk, before his drunken friends. That's no way to treat a wife. Men don't do that. But that's what the, that's what the king does. And she says, no... And he becomes enraged. And so this is where we start to see, I think, a little bit of the humor in Esther. A little bit of the animal farm-like poking. Because what the text does now is it records the history, is it shows the king's response to being refused. Remember, he's not used to being refused. And to be refused by his wife, 
That is a big no-no in the ancient world. That is the utmost of embarrassment. And so what the king does is he gets his royal officials together. They all come together and he says, what are we going to do? She said, no. She said, no. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? She said, no. And the author's poking a little fun here. So the idea is the uh, Memukan shows up and he says, hey, here's what we're going to do, king. Uh, We're going to make a law. And we're going to make a law that says your wife has to obey you. Oh, and let's get rid of your wife too and get another one that will be more subservient. (laughs) It's kind of funny. It's kind of funny. The way that the most powerful man in the world has to gain submission from his wife is to make a law and to say, you have to do it. In the ancient world, this was not looked kindly upon. Because in the ancient world, right, they had, first of all, they had a very low view of women in the ancient world. Right? They were treated as objects for the most part. But women were supposed to obey their husbands, not really out of love. In, in those times. But culturally, women were supposed to obey their husbands because they were afraid of them. Because they were afraid of them. And when Vashti decides to disobey her husband, what she's saying is, I'm not afraid of you. I don't respect you. And this to the most powerful man in the world. This is a blow. This is the ultimate humiliation that this king could experience. It's one thing if the Greeks refuse him, his enemies. It's another thing if the wife of his own household refuses him. Now, whether or not Vashti should have come or not, that's not the point. The point is this is a humiliation for the king. And he responds by making a law because apparently his wife doesn't fear him. So he has to make a law. And that's what he does. The law goes out to all the land, and this is going to create... Uh, the situation in which Esther will show up in chapter 2. But what I want you to see here is that you have, first of all, the exaltation of this great king. He puts on this, this great show. So powerful. And then he's humbled in the most simplest of ways. And the author of Esther is poking fun at him. Poking fun at this great king of Persia and saying he's not all he's cracked up to be. He's not as powerful as you think he is. And all of this is going to work toward the greater theme of Esther, which is earthly kings are not where you want to put your trust. Earthly kings are not where you want to put your dependence. Earthly kings are not where you're going to want to put your sense of peace. I think of um, you know, our own day today. You know, we find ourselves in a position in our own day where we have a a government and not only, I mean, this doesn't really apply just to America, it applies to all nations, really. But in our own day, government has progressively begun to view itself not as a servant of the people, nor as even a servant of God, but rather as a master itself. Our government today has begun to see itself and begun to sort of exalt itself to the highest level that it possibly can. And that level is to make itself God. It puts on a show and wants us to believe that it is the most powerful thing out there. And much like the king, governments today, they can show off their wealth. They can show off their power. Right? They can hold up those golden goblets of policy. And they can show off those purple cords. 
of progress. But you see, the lesson that Esther wants us to see, and wants the original readers to see as well as it wants us to see, is that we cannot put our hope and our trust in earthly powers and earthly kings. They will disappoint. They exalt themselves to the greatest possible way that they can. But they will ultimately be humbled. They always are humbled in history. And they will be humbled because earthly kings, they're not, they're not real kings. They're not real rulers. They're not the ones who are in charge. Now, we have a different king who's in charge. And this king didn't exalt himself. No, the real king who's in charge actually humbled himself. And this king humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant. Coming as a human being. Living the life that we couldn't live. Died the death that we deserved. Rose again. Ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Who's coming again to judge the world one day. This king is the king of kings. King Ahasuerus, he exalted himself. And then he was humbled. But you know, our king of kings humbled himself. And then became exalted. Exalted beyond measure. He controls the world. He is sovereign over everything. It is that king that we want to put our trust. We are, I'm sure you've been very carefully watching the news lately. And you've been watching the election. And it's insane to me. We don't even have a final results of our national election yet. At least officially. But the election and government and all of that business has been very much on all of our minds, I'm sure. It's certainly been on my mind. And what I find at times is I find myself buying into the message of the world that says, my peace, my security, my ultimate dependence, and my happiness should be based upon who is in office. That's the message of the world, that we're not safe unless we get the right person in office. Now, don't get me wrong. Whoever we have in office is very important. We should care about that. But that's not where we find our ultimate peace. And so when I find myself in a position where I am feeling anxious because there's a certain person in office or there's not a certain person in office or I find myself anxious about the unknown, I need to remember that that's that's not where I put my peace. That's not where I put my hope. I do not depend... On earthly kings. We do not. And when we feel lack of peace, that may be a sign that we need to come to Scripture and look at what the Bible says. Our peace, our hope, is dependent upon not earthly kings, but the king of kings. Earthly kings, they hold up their gold goblets, they exalt themselves, They they make their power known. But they'll be humbled in the most simplest of ways. We depend on the King of Kings. Our sovereign God who rules. He humbled himself for us. And then was exalted. And we love him. We depend on him for his rule of all. 
And we depend on him for his saving us. Because that's the kind of God that he is. That is the kind of savior that we have. Not someone who exalts himself unworthily, but one who exalts himself as the most worthy being in all of the world. And we're going to see, as we make our way through the book of Esther, how that king of kings, how that savior, how that one whom we depend on for our peace and our security, how that one works out his plan of salvation to protect his people in this book. And I am looking so forward to that, to going through that with you. Can we pray and thank our God and Savior for his governing of us and for his being our dependence? Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you this morning that uh, you are not like earthly rulers. You are not like earthly kings. Oh God, we, uh, we sometimes fall prey to the messages of the world that says that, you know, if the king of Persia is ruling, it's bad news. But if the king of David is ruling, then it's good news. Oh God, we, 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 should, not, we should not just get messed up about earthly rulers, oh God. We pray that you would give us peace in knowing that you are the one who is in charge. There is no ruler put in authority whom you have not placed there yourself. Oh God, you are the sovereign one. You are the one in whom we find peace. And oh God, we pray that you would teach us that today. Lord, we thank you that you did not exalt yourself, but rather that your son, Jesus Christ, humbled himself and then was exalted. And because of that, Lord, then we can also be raised with him and be saved. Oh God, you are not like earthly kings. You are the king of kings. And Lord, we pray that you would massage this truth deeply into our hearts and that it's in you that we would find our peace and security and that we would trust you. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.